All right. Well, if you're like most of the other people in this room, uh, every week you've got stuff coming across your desk or coming across your inbox or coming across you that may or may not be true, may or may not be accurate. And you've got to discern, hey, is this one legit or is it not? Here's an example of something I came across this week. Um, here's, the, here's what the article says. It was on the Internet, so we know it's true, right? Um, after picking up a golf club for the very first time in his life, the now deceased leader of North Korea fired a 38 under par. Not bad, 38 under par on a round of 34 at the grand opening of North Korea's only 18-hole golf course. Now, this is according to the 17 security guards who observed the performance. I'm not a golf guy. I'm not a golf guy, so I don't know a ton about golf. But I'm going to speculate that for a rookie performance, that was pretty good. Is that fair to, fair to say? Anyone else a little skeptical of this uh, story? Come on, there's 17 witnesses. Yeah. Well, for those of you who just joined us, we're, we're in, a, we're in a, a series where we're talking about the Bible. And what we're going to look at today is the Bible's credibility. And there's a lot of folks out there that would say the Bible's really not any different than that story we just looked at. You know, that, that story we just looked at, the claim seems pretty, pretty amazing. But for an outsider looking in, and even for some of us insiders, the Bible seems pretty amazing too. And there's people that might look at you if you're a person who believes that the scriptures are true, and they would say, so really you believe that people crossed the Red Sea on dry land? Or you believe that there was a little shepherd boy, you really believe this, that he took down a giant with his sling? Or the biggest one of all, they'd say, you know, I know you guys gather every Easter, but do you really believe that there was a tomb that was empty that first Easter Sunday morning? And there are those who, understandably so, they're not able to trust the historical accuracy of the 66 books in our Bible any more than I can trust the accuracy of those 17 witnesses who testified to Kim Jong-il's golfing, amazing uh, performance there. Can the Bible's testimony be trusted? That's what we're going to look at today. Can we really trust this book? Well, we only have time to turn over the first snowflake on the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg, that is this. So you'll notice in your, um, your bulletins today, I put a couple extra inserts in there. It's another bulletin taco Sunday. Um, there's some purple ones and blue ones and cream ones. Now, if you're here last week, these are new quotes. These are all new. They're not a repeat of the last one. These are new ones that pertain to this week's um, message. I know a lot of you, that's not your thing, but I also know enough of you to know, hey, I appreciate facts and I would like to take some of this home. I'd like to fact check it. I'd like to look at it, cross-reference it. For a lot of us, we like to stick this stuff in a file where we can look and pull it out when we get into these discussions so we can have intelligent things to contribute. So that's what those are. The yellow insert is a list of resources. That one is the same. There's resources for people of all ages about the Bible and including the Bible. I've got um, copies of all of the hardcover ones here up on the front. I'd encourage you to come and take a look if you'd like to look at some of those resources for yourself or your family afterwards. And then there's the green sheet. The green sheet is a note sheet because we're going to move fast today, as fast as I can, um, because we're talking about the question, is the Bible credible? And I've got 35 minutes less now, less than 35 minutes to give it my best shot. So here we go. Let's start with this two-part question. It's on your green sheet. Here we go. Can we trust that credible testimony when it comes to the Bible, can we trust that credible testimony was handed down accurately? Isn't that it right there? 
Doesn't it all rest on that? If the original source was credible, and then if that original source material was handed down accurately. That's everything, isn't it? If it wasn't, we've got a problem. If it wasn't a credible testimony, then you've got lies or legends that got passed down. doesn't matter how accurate it is at that point, right? And if you had a credible story, but along the way someone doctored the documents, then you've got lies and you've got legends. So both of these things matter. And both of these things are things we're going to quickly look at here today. Because if the testimony was credible, if it was passed down accurately, then we've got a document that has eternal significance. And we'll talk about that more in a second. All right. For now, let's start with part two of the question that I put out there. Is it credible and is it accurately handed down? Let's start with the accurate handedly down part. So is, it, is the Bible contained information that has been accurate, accurately Accurately. There's a new one. Accurately. I can remember coined that phrase. All right, ha- not accurately. It wasn't accurately, but accurately handed down. Um, or was it not accurate? And did the Red Sea start off as walking through the mud, and it over time became wading through waist-deep water, and then over time it became crossing the Red Sea? Or over time did you have David fighting a bully, and then over time he goes to battle and does well, and then over time that becomes I'm facing the giant. Is that what we have? Or was what we had then, had now. Now, how many of you guys like facts? Anyone like facts? I love facts. Love facts. Facts are our friends, right? Facts are our friends. Love facts. If you like facts, you're going to like today. Let's talk about facts. Let's live in the world of facts. You're going to hear some of my opinions, but let's look primarily at facts. Here's a fact. Manuscript evidence. Let's talk about manuscript evidence, right? Manuscript evidence verifies the original content was accurately passed down from generation to generation. Here's why I'm saying that's such an important fact, that manuscript evidence is such an important fact. How many of you believe that there was an Alexander the Great at some point in history, all right? Do you ever stop to ask why you believe that? You know, you, know, you, you go to your history textbooks, textbooks, right? Well, they have to have source material. If you go back far enough, let me show you something here. Um, one of my sources, anyway, says if you go back far enough, the manuscript evidence, the actual hard evidence that we have in the form of ancient documents that were dated within a hundred years of Alexander the Great's life. There's two, and we don't even have two complete ones. We have fragments from two documents that were written within a hundred years of Alexander the Great's life. All right? So we're going to represent each one of those documents, those fragments, I guess, with a piece of paper. All right? So for Alexander the Great, we've got two documents that can be dated within a hundred years of his life. Now, He was, this is pretty amazing because we're basing a pretty amazing story off of these two documents. We're basing a story of a a man who, by the age of 33, only lived 33 years or so. Within 33 years, he had conquered this huge, huge piece of real estate going from Greece to India to Egypt. We're basing all of that off of other things in history, but the manuscript evidence that we've got, I understand, is just two, two documents, two frames of two documents. Let's talk about another 33-year-old. There's another 33-year-old, Jesus of Nazareth. And when you add up the documents, the actual physical evidence, the physical manuscripts that could be dated within 100 years of his life, at least the, the source material there, you, you've got 20 to 25,000 of those documents. 20 to 25,000. And that's not all. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Because when you take the other writings about those documents, where they're being quoted in other ancient documents, that adds up to a million, a 
million. So if every one of the documents or testimonials to it is a piece of paper and you've got 5,000 in each of these boxes, you'd need 200 more boxes if you're talking about these ancient documents. So that's, that's a lot. That's considerable. Does it appear as though there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who was a person in, in history? It appears to be so. Now, you, you might do some pushback here on a number of things, but one of the things you might push back on is you might say, well, okay, Alexander, great. There's more evidence than just the manuscript evidence, to which I would say, yeah, let's go there with Jesus too, right? But we're not going to do that today. What I want to do today is I want to focus on the manuscript evidence because we're talking about a document. And one of the ways you verify whether a document was changed over time is you compare the ancient documents, the ancient manuscript evidence. You look and see, were the old documents, did they say one thing, and then did they appear to get changed over time? If you find a document that was dated in the 200 AD, does that document look like one that was dated to 100 AD, or does it look like they were changed over time? Now, let's pretend that you subscribe to what's called the telephone game theory when it comes to the historical Jesus. Uh, I've heard so many people say this, um, that, hey, it was just uh, Jesus became legendary over time that there was perhaps a great teacher. And over time, the legend grew, and, and Jesus, the great teacher, became Jesus, the great miracle worker. And over time, someone said, well, Jesus was such a powerful personality that after his death, the disciples felt his presence among them still. And then people say over time, then that presence among them became stories of Jesus physically rising from the dead. Anyone ever heard of a theory similar to that? Just me? All right, just me and two Rockfords. Okay, I've heard this one a lot. It's out there. Trust me, you'll come across it at some point. All right, so if you subscribe to that theory, the problem with that theory, there's no hard evidence to support it. In fact, the hard evidence refutes it. Why do I say that? You compare the older manuscripts to the newer manuscripts, and the Red Sea doesn't get deeper over time. And Goliath doesn't get taller over time. And if you take even the documents we've got today in our Bibles, you compare those to the early documents, it's the same Jesus. So there's not the evidence. If you're a person that likes facts, the physical manuscript evidence supports the belief that the documents as they were recorded back then and copied through the ages are saying pretty much the same thing that they're saying now. Why do I say pretty much? I say pretty much because there are discrepancies. There's little things here and there where it appears someone tried to put something in or take something out. One of the reasons we want to point you to these resources like the ESV Study Bible, if you've got a great resource like this, I don't make any money off these. If you get a great resource like this, they'll tell you where most of the discrepancies are. They'll say when you compare manuscripts, here's a place where you're going to see some discrepancies. Some documents have this one, some don't. Some say it this way, some say it another way. It's important to have a resource like this. I have people that come knocking on our door, and they say, yeah, we believe what you believe, and they're from some other thing. We believe, what you, we, we have the Bible, we believe the Bible. I said, which version do you use? And they tell me their version, and I said, well, which manuscripts is yours based off? And they said, well, our scholars don't want any credit for themselves, so they don't, we don't know who our scholars are, but they use the reliable manuscripts. Well, maybe you can take that leap of faith. I can't. I want to build a fact check. Which documents are you using? Right? So anyway, so I would encourage you to get a resource like that. I'd encourage you to get a resource like that. All right, let's turn a corner. 
If there's no evidence of documents being doctored along the way, let's go then to the source material. Are the authors themselves credible? Let's put the Bible through the same tests that you'd put other ancient documents through. And there's more tests than this. But for the sake of time, I'm going to give you four, four ways that you would test an ancient document. You got an ancient document. How do you test if there's credible, uh, if it's credible testimony? First thing you do, there's a place for this in your notes. You would say, are the witnesses credible? Now, can an unreliable witness give credible testimony? Yes. Best case scenario, though, is credible witness, credible testimony. And again, I want to encourage you to do your homework. And if you do that, you'll find that the ancient witnesses, especially when it comes to the New Testament, you're not going to find more credible witnesses than that in all of history. Here's a quote that ridiculously summarizes um, all that could be said. They say this, why would followers of Jesus embark on such a self-defeating conspiracy? Why would every one of them continue to say that Jesus had risen from the dead when they could have saved themselves by recanting that testimony? Christianity was a persecuted faith during the time that these things were being written. Why would they write them when there was nothing for them to gain and everything to lose? More could be said about this. For the sake, let's move on. Credit, for sake of time, let's move on. Credible testimony doesn't just come from credible witnesses. It also comes from multiple witnesses are many people saying the same thing? Are many people saying the same thing? If you want to establish credibility, it helps to have multiple witnesses. Some of you might remember this research I came across for another message. I love, I love this one. What this is, what you're going to see on the screens here, is they took ancient documents and they said, let's take people who weren't converted to Christianity. Some of them were skeptics, some were other things, but they were writing about Jesus. What can we establish about Jesus' life if we go to ancient documents that weren't included in the Bible? Here's 11 things that you could find. One, Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. Two, Jesus lived a virtuous life. Three, he was a wonder worker. Four, he had a brother named James. Five, he was acclaimed to be the, a messiah. Six, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Seven, he was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. Eight, darkness and an earthquake occurred when he died. Nine, his disciples were willing to die for their belief. Ten, Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. Eleven, his disciples denied the Roman gods and worshipped Jesus as the true God. This sounds like the Apostles' Creed, doesn't it? And this is all information that we can find in ancient sources outside of the Bible. Now, I used to think that this was more convincing, that you, you get this evidence coming from a non-Christian, that's going to be more convincing. I'm rethinking that. This week as I was going through this, I was like, you know, to me, I'm more convinced by someone who converted to Christianity in the first century. What did they say? To me, it's more astounding that all of these witnesses were writing these things down, converted. They didn't grow up in a Christian home because there were no Christian homes prior to Jesus. So all of these testimonies that we have that are now recorded in the Bible, these are all people who came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that he rose from the dead. Somehow Jesus convinced all these people of that, either directly or indirectly through others. And then when you start putting that together, it's astounding because these are individual books of the Bible that were collected into a, a collection of documents. So you've got Luke testifying to what Matthew says and John says and Peter says in his gospel. 
Luke's gospel, in turn, is supported by testimony from Matthew and Mark and John. You've got Peter testifying to Paul. You've got Paul testifying to Luke. You've got Luke traveling with Paul. You've got Peter as a guest in Mark's house. We can do this all day long. What was it about Jesus of Nazareth that convinced all these people to believe that he rose from the dead? That's crazy. Again, more could be said for the sake of time. Let's keep moving. I encourage you to write this down. Credible testimony provides a historical context. Credible testimony provides a historical context. If you want to make a story up, you don't give it details that could be fact-checked, right? You want to make something up, you want to have a story that people can't dispute. This is one, there'd be a number of reasons why I wouldn't make a good Mormon, but one of them would be I'd have my hand up too much. I'd be like, wait a minute. Okay, so we're basing ourselves on this document, and with all due respect, we're basing ourselves on this, our movement on this document that claims that there was a civilization here in the Americas, but there's no evidence for that, 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 that civilization. I can't make that leap of faith. And when it comes to the scriptures, not only do you not have to make that leap of faith, it's the opposite. The, the historical evidence fact checks. Where it can be tested, it, it's tested and, and proven true. You've got books. You've got volumes of books and historical artifacts sitting in museums. And you have cities where the Bible said there were cities. And they're like, look at that big mound of dirt. Could that be that city that we looked at? Let's dig in that mound of dirt. And behold, it's the city that we said it was. And they even find little inscriptions of people who the Bible said were there. It's absolutely astounding, which um, leads uh, one of my sources to say, say this, ask this question. It just begs this question. Why would an author like Luke, if you want to start someplace, start with Luke. He wrote the book of Luke, Luke wrote the book of Acts. Fact check Luke on his facts. It's incredible, all right? Why would an author like Luke be so accurate with trivial details like wind directions and water depths and peculiar town names? Why would he be accurate about that but not be accurate when it comes to important events like miracles? In light of the fact that Luke has proven accurate in so many trivial details, it is nothing but pure anti-supernatural bias to say that he's not telling the truth about the miracles that he records. All right, let's move on to the last of our four criteria. Then I want to move towards implications. Criteria number four, credible testimony is gathered soon after the event. Credible testimony is gathered soon after the event. When it comes to ancient documents, the closer you have the documents to the actual event, the better off generally you are. Now, if you take Alexander's life, again, if my sources were correct, Alec, the, the, the historical documents that we base most of our information off about Alexander were written three to 500 years after Alexander lived. So there was three to 500 years before people wrote those things down, or at least the ones we're looking at. There was that much time for things to become legend, for things to get distorted, or whatever. All right, let's talk about the New Testament. What about the New Testament. How close were these things? The Old Testament is a lot harder to date. So let's just talk about the, um, the New Testament here. There is a strong case that can be made that every one of the books of the Bible included in our New Testament can be dated within the first century. When did Jesus walk the earth? The first 
century. Now, was there a period of time where, where things were passed down word of mouth? Absolutely. You would expect that. When we go into a courtroom, what do you do? You call witnesses, right? In fact, in the ancient world, we, in the Western world, we have such a bias against verbal testimony. In the ancient world, they used to say things like this. You can't look a letter in the eye. You can't go to that letter's village the way you can go to a village. You know, in our villages around here, especially, we drive into our garages and no one knows us, right? Our neighbors may not know us. In that time, in that place, you knew people. You knew who the credible witnesses were. So you'd go into a village. Here's a credible witness. They're telling you the truth, and the, it can be collaborated by the village, right? So was there a period of time where it was people were giving verbal testimony to Jesus? Of course there was, and that was a good thing. And when they needed to send a letter far away, people like Paul wrote these things down. And when there were people that, that, that weren't in those villages and they wanted to hear these things, there were people like Luke who gathered the stories from the reliable witnesses, wrote them down. And again, a strong case can be made. Some of these things were being written down, not 300, but 30 years, 15 years within the actual events themselves. So if a person was a skeptic, they could fact check it themselves. You need to know this. You need to know that if you're putting your faith in the Bible, if you're putting your faith in these documents as reliable, you're putting your faith in the most highly vetted ancient documents ever in the history of the world. You're not putting your faith, again with all due respect, you're not putting your faith in one man who said I had gold tablets come down from heaven. With all due respect, you're not putting your faith in one man who says an angel told me these things over the course of 10 years. You're putting your faith in multiple witnesses, highly credible witnesses, I would argue. All right. Well, so far we've been talking about the Bible. I'd like to spend our last few minutes reading from the Bible and pointing out a few things along the way. And I want to... Uh, frame this in something that happened to me on Tuesday, on Tuesday morning. Um, now, here's, here's the story, the backstory behind this text here. Um, I have the worst memory in this room. And um, if you want to challenge me on that, you'll have to remind me that I gave you that challenge, right? This, I have to write everything down. I'm just, I, I have the worst memory in the world. And, and so I'm going into Tuesday, and Tuesday I was going to start working on this message. On Tuesday mornings is one of the times I try to block off text so I can work on this. So Tuesday morning comes, and I'm like, you know, I got to get back into the Word myself. I want to just read um, the Bible, not related to my message prep. I just want to read it. And so I said, today I'm just going to pick up where I left off last time. All right, so Tuesday morning. And, and here's the other important piece of information that I almost forgot to tell you that I had written down there. Um, other important piece of information. This week, I was thinking, you know, I need to find where that story is about King Cyrus. The, the one where there was a prophet, and this prophet predicted that Cyrus was going to issue like a decree to go back and build the temple in Jerusalem. It's in there somewhere, in the Bible somewhere, but I couldn't remember where. I'm like, later today or whatever, I'm going to have to look that up because I think it would be a great way to close the message this week. Okay? So there's some background. So now you know exactly where this is going, right? Opened up my Bible Tuesday morning to um, 
to where I had left off. And I was going to read about four-ish chapters, okay? So I open up to Isaiah. And if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Isaiah chapter 43, uh, starting with verse 10. Isaiah chapter 43, starting with verse 10. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one today, absolutely free. We've got a stack of them there at that table and at that table. They're there every week. If not this week, another week, if you want to pick one up, they're there for you. All right? Here we go. Um, starting with Isaiah 43. Uh, this was one of the chapters that I think I started 41, 42. Again, I don't remember well, but I started in 41, 42. This one will give you a feel for what the prophet Isaiah is revealing that God is trying to say. All right? So here we go. Uh, 43, 10 through 11. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know me and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. All right, so this is the overall tone of the passage that I'm looking at here. God is saying, I am God. There is no other God. I do things that no other God can do. All right, let's keep reading. Just as I kept reading that morning, 44, let's jump ahead to chapter 44, verse 7. This is where it starts to get fun. God says this, who is like me? Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. So God issues a challenge to all that would take it up. He says, if you think you're a God like me, do this. Declare what is going to happen and then make it come to pass. If you can do what I can do, then that shouldn't be too tough for you. Declare something and then make it come to pass. All right, let's jump ahead here. Verse 28. Verse 20. Who is a God like our God? Who says of who? Cyrus. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I've had this happen too many times. Not every day, not every week, not every month. I've had this happen too many times. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose? saying specifically of Jerusalem, she shall be built specifically of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Who besides me can call out this guy 150 years before he even comes on the scene? Because Cyrus has, this is written 150 years before Cyrus. There was a real guy, Cyrus, king of Persia, look him up. He's a real guy, all right? He comes 150 years later. 150 years before that, God says, who can say of Cyrus, rebuild my temple. Who else can, can say that? All right. Bookmark this. Bookmark this. Let's look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36, 22 through 23. Here's another example of how the Bible validates itself. These were independent documents, independent sources, each testifying to this. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 through 23 says this. Now, even though if you've got a physical Bible, you're flipping backwards, you're actually going forward in time. The Bible's not all laid out chronologically. So we're, we're actually, as we're turning backwards, we're going forwards 150 years, all right, to this. Now, in the first year of who? Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord stirred up 
the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord. Now, Cyrus wasn't a God follower. He had his own gods. He wasn't a follower of the God of Israel. But he says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house where? At Jerusalem which is in Judah. He had to add that, which is in Judah, because he's way off in Persia, you know, and they're like, Judah, where's that? Now, again, remember, this document wasn't written by Isaiah. This document comes from another independent source, and this independent source is collaborated by another independent source who's not in our Bible, the historian Josephus. If you do first century history, you're going to come across Josephus. Josephus writes... Get this, in Jewish Antiquities, one of his books, he writes a story in which Cyrus comes across a prophecy by Isaiah and is so moved by the scripture's ability to predict the future, Cyrus sets out to fulfill his destiny. Am I the only one? Come on! That, am I the only one who just looks at it go, are you kidding me? This is one example from the scriptures. Now, here's the thing, and I appreciate, because there's probably some folks in this room who are truth-seeking, intelligent, well-read, well-learned folks who have done a great job of just holding your tongue because you'd say, I would disagree with almost every point you made. And if we had more time, we could, we could have a discussion up here. This is one of the reasons small groups are so good. You could have a discussion, and I could say, this is what happened to me on Tuesday. And you could say, what a great coincidence, you know? And I could say, come on, look at this. Isaiah said these things 150 years before they came to pass. And you could say, yeah, but there were three Isaiahs. Everyone knows that. There was first Isaiah, second Isaiah, third Isaiah. Third Isaiah was written after the prophecy came to pass. And we could go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And if you're a person that doesn't know what to believe about the Bible, you'd be like, this is like a tennis match. Come on. And you might be just say, let's just call time out. Let's call it a draw because my neck is getting sore. You got your points. You got your points. Let's agree to disagree. Let's go to our separate corners and move on with life. What I would say to you, don't treat the Bible like that. Why? Because of the magnitude of its claims. Because if one, listen to this, if one just one of these documents, 66 documents, if just one of them comes from a credible source, credible, credible? <laughs> so much for the dramatic moment, huh? Let's make sure you got that one on tape, right? If just one of these sources was credible and it was accurately passed down, if just one was, then there's one true God. All 66 don't have to be right. If just one of these was a credible testimony that was accurately handed down, then there's one true God, and he offers you this invitation. Here's how it comes through the prophet Isaiah. It comes in a lot, through a lot of different voices, a lot of different words, but here's how Isaiah puts it. Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved. That's the invitation that this one God gives you. Turn to me and be saved. And I don't know all of you, but I know a lot of you, and, and I know that we need this. We need to turn to him and be saved. 
because there's a whole lot of us where we've got something in our life that is broken that we can't fix. And we need to turn to God to be saved. And there's a whole lot of folks who feel like you are in a battle right now and you're not on the winning side. And God's invitation to you is turn to me and be saved. And I know how a lot of you, you run fast and you're revving at high RPMs and you are being pulled this way and you're being pulled that way and you're being pulled that way and you're being pulled that way. And it's like, I feel like I'm going to get pulled apart. You know, which decision do I make? Where does my attention go right now? How do I find peace in the midst of this? There's a God who says, turn to me and be saved. And there's a whole lot of folks who, okay, I shouldn't say that. I'm a person who is addicted to stupidity. I do the same thing often over and over again that I knew isn't going to be helpful. I thought I learned that lesson before. I repeat it again. You know. And if you're at all like that, there's an invitation from God that says, turn to me and be saved. And there's people who you're in over your head or you're facing a giant that's bigger than you or you've got a challenge that makes, look, walking through the Red Sea, man, I, that's like a kiddie pool faced to what I'm facing. You've got choices ahead and decisions to make. There is wisdom in this book that's been handed down to us. And there is guidance in this book that has been handed down to us. And beyond just wisdom and guidance, there is a God who wants to meet you like he met me on Tuesday in those words and bring them alive and speak in and through them. And a whole new conversation starts sometimes because of him meeting us in his word. So as we close together this morning, let's respond to this invitation and, and, and pray together. Would you please stand as I pray uh, for us here? Oh, Lord, I do thank you for the folks who've shown such restraint here today. Um, people who disagree strongly with things that I've said. And, and Lord, I thank you for that. And, and I do pray, Lord, that, um, that you would bring us into a conversation where we could talk and I could listen and they could listen. And instead of trying to prove each other's points, Lord, help us all to be people who aren't out trying to prove each other's points, but, but we're seeking truth together, Lord. And, and I pray that you'd help us to that end. Lord, we do pray that you will teach us what it means to turn to you to be saved because we are facing things that are bigger than us and stronger than us. And Lord, we are even sometimes facing success that could take us a direction that we don't want to go. Lord, may we turn to you in a fresh way with the start of this new week. Turn to you, turn to your life-giving word, and may we meet you there and be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Check out these resources on your way out, and uh, we'll see you next week.